Father God, as we come to you in this moment, we have been reminded of the necessity to worship your Son, Jesus Christ. We've been reminded from the scriptures themselves that the angelic host who dwell in your presence, who are blessed beyond all measure, had to tear back the veil of the sky in order to peer down and proclaim glory to God in the highest. And Father, if those creatures that are most familiar with your glory needed to do that, how much more ought we, who have but seen glimpses of this glory, seek to worship him who is most glorious? We thank you this morning for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he lived a life in accordance with your perfect will, your law, your word. We thank you that he became for us our substitute, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that he was willing to lay down his life for us, and that his one life would be more than sufficient for all who would believe, for all who would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We thank you that Jesus and his name means he saves. And Father God, our prayer this morning is that we would be so overwhelmed with the greatness of this salvation that has not, it's not just a thing, it's a person, that our salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so may Jesus Christ be praised, not just with our lips, not just with the songs that we sing, but Father God, we pray that our very hearts would be transformed by the sweetness of the name of Jesus Christ, that our lives would be conformed to his image, to his likeness, that our ways would be his ways, that we would follow him and imitate him, that the one who says that he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as Christ himself walked. Father, we confess that is a standard that is beyond our ability. But we thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us, causes us to walk in your ways. And so our prayer this morning is that even as we come to celebrate this season, this time in which we reflect upon the greatness of Christ, that we would not quench your spirit, that we would not squelch your spirit and disappoint the spirit of God, that we would be those who, in dependence upon your spirit, ask you, Lord, how might I properly praise you? How, how might I properly declare my devotion and gratitude to you who has done so much, has done everything necessary for me? Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. May he be the present that we most desire to continue to unwrap if we know, know you, that we recognize there's so much more to know about Christ. And Father, we pray for those in here, this room this morning, or watching online, we pray for those who have yet to fully begin to unwrap who Christ is. May today be the day they see him as Savior. May they recognize that he has come to save sinners. And so, Father God, we pray that today would be a day of salvation, that you would remind us of the greatness of him who has saved us, and we would delight in those truths, and they would continue to transform our lives. 
Father, we pray that you would now lead us and guide us in the truth of your word. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in this manner by which you have prescribed. May you be honored and glorified. May Christ be exalted. May your spirit be that which moves our hearts. And may your church be built up in the most holy faith. We ask and pray these things in the name that is above every name, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. So if you would please stand as we read our text this morning from John, the Gospel of John, John 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to drop down to verse 14. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So in the reading of God's word, may we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Well, if you didn't know this, tonight is Christmas Eve. And I imagine that if you have children around, they have reminded you. But most of us will be gathered in some form or another, either today or tomorrow, with family and or friends, enjoying the season of what's been called merriment and giving. But why? Why do we do this? Why celebrate Christmas? Now, asking the question, why celebrate Christmas, may be akin for some of you to look upon me now with scrutiny. Has Pastor Ed become some kind of Ebenezer Scrooge? Why celebrate Christmas? Bah. But I assure you I've not, nor do I wish to be visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Yet it is clear in our culture that there are many people who actually do wonder... What is the point of Christmas? Many see it as nothing more than a business opportunity for uh, businesses to make or break their fiscal year, hoping that the materialistic greed of of consumers will motivate them to buy more and more, and, and that's the extent of their Christmas celebration. While there are many who see the secularization of Christmas, most Americans, however, still realize and recognize that at the heart of it all, there remains this vague, this abstract notion that Jesus is still the reason for the season. I mean, come on, the word is Christmas, Christmas. It speaks about Christ, right? And yet while Christ we know is to be at the heart of the season, there yet remains a huge gap between what people are vaguely aware of, 
that Christ is the heart of Christmas. And what most people actually do with that knowledge, with this awareness. In other words, while people know at one level that Jesus is the reason for the season, they do not think about it enough. And they do not think about it rightly so as to be able to answer the question, why celebrate Christmas? It is true that nowhere in Scripture are believers commanded or expected to celebrate Christmas, the season in which we seek to reflect on why it is that Jesus came to the earth, that he is God, a very God, and he was born human and became fully and truly flesh. But the Scriptures are full of truths concerning the first advent, this time we call Christmas, the coming of Christ, And whether we reflect on such truths on December 25th or June 25th is somewhat not as important as simply taking time at any point to ponder the marvel of what happened when the Son of God who dwelled in eternity stepped into time and became flesh to become the Son of Man. And that we choose to do it in a season with the start of winter is no violation of Scripture. And as believers, we ought to take advantage then both publicly and privately of a time of year when we have an opportunity to speak to others to ponder that same question of why celebrate Christmas with the answer as simply as it is the time in which Emmanuel, God with us, has come. And to that end, this morning's message, if you had not guessed, is entitled, Why Celebrate Christmas? And my prayer for all of us is that we would seek not only to understand the most basic truth of the Son of God being born into the world, but then also consider the reason why he was born, why he came to us in the first place. It wasn't so that we would have candy canes and Christmas trees and exchange gifts. That's not why he came. The reality is that the birth And then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead solved the most deepest and darkest of all of humanity's problems. You all come here with a problem. Some of you have had the problem solved. All of you come with a terminal disease. And yet, there's been a cure given. And what is humanity's most profound problem? It starts it's a three-letter, I can't say this, there's a three-letter word that starts with S and ends with N, and you know it as sin. Our problem, as you are very aware of, Scripture testifies, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think about that verse, Romans 3.23, to fall short of the glory of God. It's not just that God's all glorious and we've disappointed him. God put his glory into humanity from the beginning. And we, because we sin, we mess that up. We taint it. We tarnish it. We fall short of what God intended for us. And so... That truth, that our greatest problem is sin, and that we are all sinners, and not one of us has an access or a pathway, a means by which to engage God in any other way than this. If you do not know Christ, the only pathway you have to God is as a judge who will condemn you for your sins and for which you will pay the price of eternal damnation. 
eternal death. For the wages of sin is death, so says Romans 6.23. The truth is that the, in the recesses of our humanity, we recognize this plight. And so all of humanity has tried to develop some sort of method by which to reach out to God appease God or understand God for some such efforts of obtaining an audience with God are seen as so futile so condemning to humanity that their way of handling the God dilemma is well I'll just try to ignore God I'll just try to discount God altogether we call that atheism and yet scripture in Psalm 14:1 says that it is the wicked who say there is no God they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie so that they might worship and serve the creature, that they might worship and serve themselves rather than the creator who is forever blessed, according to Romans 1.25. The truth of the matter is that while creation itself declares the glory of God, Psalm 19.1, and provides us with clear evidence of his invisible attributes, that he does exist, and he has eternal power, and he is divine, according to Romans 1.20. Your, our sinful minds go out of their way to pervert and suppress such truths in our unrighteousness, is what Paul says in Romans 1.18. And since humanity is both unwilling and unable to come to God for grace and forgiveness, and since we have so perverted the truth of God, God solved the problem. He solved our greatest need by sending forth his own son into the world. But it wasn't just God who came into the world as God. God did something miraculous. He became flesh. He became like you and like me. He had bones and blood. He had to eat and drink. It would be this child, this holy child, who would by means of his life in the flesh do something beyond even providing our salvation. In fact, our text will tell us that one of the primary reasons why Jesus came in the flesh, are you ready for this? To reveal to us the glory of God. To reveal to us the wonder of God. And to show us how the glory of God can be manifested in a life that is obedient to God. In other words... We see Christ living out uh, his life to the glory of God, for the glory of God, revealing the glory of God, and then says, follow me, and you will do the same. I love that picture. He reveals to us the glory and the goodness of God in the most clear of ways in this deeply dark and sinful world. And so this brings us to our text this morning. For in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and verses 14 through 18, we find one of the greatest answers to the question, why celebrate Christmas? And I say one of the answers because, as I've suggested, there are far more than we could ever consider in one sitting this morning. However, this is truly one of the most stunning reasons why the Son of God came into the world. And just what is that reason? 
I submit to you, Jesus came into the world to reveal and explain the glory of God to us. He came to show us exactly what the glory of God looks like when it's lived out in human flesh. My wife received a present already for Christmas because she wants to celebrate Christmas all month long. And uh, she got an espresso machine from her boss, and I was told that I had to, to uh, get this grinder. And I don't even want to talk about uh, how expensive grinders, good grinders for espresso machine can be. So we have the grinder. It's sitting there on our counter. It's so pretty. It's cute, as my wife said. And I have not used it yet because uh, Laura's boss said, I will come and show you how to do it. And one of my fears is that she'll come and say, now show me how you do all of this. And I, no, no, no. I want you who know how to do this to show me how to do it. And I will watch so that I'm very good once I can see how something's done, I can repeat that. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to show us the glory of God and how it looks in the life of one who's obedient so that we can look on him and follow him. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to try to figure this out on my own. Christ has come into the world to reveal and explain the glory of God to us. To put it another way, Jesus came to show us who God is and what God is like and what it looks like to follow him. Without Jesus, we simply could not go know God correctly. And so we'll consider our text with four points. Jesus reveals the glory of God perfectly. Jesus reveals the glory of God in his person Jesus reveals the glory of God in his preeminence. And then finally, Jesus reveals the glory of God in his presence. Yeah, I'm going to give you presence this morning. To borrow from and expand a familiar C.S. Lewis quote, and this is my tweak on it, the perfect son of God became the perfect son of man so that the imperfect sons of men may be made the perfect sons of God. And so we praise God in the words of 1 John 3, 1, saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called, what? Sons, children of God. Ponder with me what our Lord Jesus reveals to us about our great and glorious God. With our first point, Jesus reveals the glory of God perfectly. In our text, this truth is revealed to us in the last verse. So we're going to start at the end and then work our way back to it. This is the culmination. This is the climax in verse 18 of why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did Jesus do this? And the reason why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, is found right here in verse 18. No one has seen God. No one has perceived him, has rightly understood God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has what? Explained him. Because we're all, we are all sinners, not one of us has truly seen God, has not truly known God by means of direct access. Our access even now isn't direct in the sense that it must be through Jesus Christ. 
I had the privilege once of meeting uh, Dr. John MacArthur and shaking his hand, and he's a big guy, and he has a big hand. I thought he might crush my hand when he uh, sh shook my hand. I've even had the privilege of preaching in some pulpits that he had preached in, and he wasn't there at the time, but uh, still was kind of an overwhelming, uh, somber idea. And yet, though I've shaken his hand on a couple of occasions and I've preached in a couple of pulpits that he's preached uh, in, I do not know the man by direct access. If I were to call Grace Community Church this afternoon and say, hey, let me speak to uh, John MacArthur, this is, this is Ed Godfrey, they would say, who? They would not patch me through. I do not have his personal number I doubt that he would drop everything to receive my call. On the other hand, I do know a Mr. Brett Yamaji, and I do have direct access to him. I know that if I call him, he will take my call. Beloved, before coming to Christ, we do not have direct access to God. But the issue is not simply that God will not take our calls because we're sinners. The issue is that we have, are so steeped in our sins that we would never make the call in the first place. And so for all sinners, God becomes veiled. God is unknown. God is out of our grasp. What do we know or what we do know or what we think we know about God is at best corrupted by sin. But there is a someone a someone who does have direct access, a someone who does know God intimately, a someone who, according to this verse, is in the bosom of the Father, a term that speaks of the absolute and mutual intimacy, love, and complete knowledge of one another that exists between the Father and the Son. And this someone who has come to us is the Son of God. Jesus came, verse 18, it says to explain the Father to us. We have to have somebody show us who the Father is. We have to have someone show us what the Father's like. We have to have someone that will say, here's how you can live a life that reflects the glory of your Father. This, then, is the reason why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus came to reveal the glory of God to us and explain to us who God truly is. Now, there's a word in here, verse 18, that I'd like you to just take special note of, and it's the word explained. He has explained him. It is the Greek word exogenome, and you say, why do I need to know that word? Well, we get our English word exegete. You've been around this pulpit for any length of time, or in our circles, we talk about the exegesis, the, the exegesis, exegeting Scripture, which means allowing Scripture to speak out of itself to tell us what it's saying. It's a reading out of the text. The opposite of exegeting is eisegesis, E-I-S, eisegesis. That is the Greek term eis, into, and that's when we take our ideas and we read into the text. And it says here that Jesus doesn't just make something up. He explains out of who God is all that God is. He's explaining God to us. 
When a biblical preacher teaches from God's word, he's to exegete a passage. Let the passage declare for itself what is the truth. And this verb here explained means to consider out loud, to rehearse or unfold truth before others, to declare, to explain, to interpret, to tell forth. Jesus came to tell us everything we need to know about God. And some of it is overwhelming because it condemns us. Some of it is delightful because if we believe, it transforms us. Everything Jesus is, And everything Jesus did perfectly interprets and explains who God is and what he has done. And so Jesus, by the way, is the supreme exegete. He's the supreme interpreter of scripture and truth. Now, with this in mind, let us go back and consider three specific ways in which Jesus exegetes or explains the glory of God. In our second point. Jesus reveals the glory of God in his person. We read, before we can properly address this this point of verse 14, we must consider verses 1 and 2, where we are introduced to this person who is identified as simply what? The word. And you all been around long enough, you're so smart, you just know what that stands for. But John, when he's starting this, hasn't introduced to us the identity of the word. He just says, in the beginning was the word. I love this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's intention in his gospel is for his readers to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, so that by faith in him they may have eternal life. At the time John wrote these words, there were a number of false teachers who had already crept into the various churches, denying very critical aspects of the nature of Jesus himself. And one of the earliest of these denials is that of a man named uh, 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 Serenith, And he denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He denied that Jesus was truly God in the flesh. John's gospel sets out to present a clear accounting of Jesus being truly God in human flesh. In fact, you can't get out of the first two verses without recognizing that the word is God. We can't get out of the first chapter without knowing that the word became flesh. And then... It will be just a couple of verses later that we're introduced that the word is Jesus Christ. So John's sneaking up on this. He's, he's setting the stage for those who would read this. John emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ and links that to believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. So John begins his gospel with what we call here these first 18 verses, the prologue, the prologue or the first words, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book. You may recall that John uh, referred to, uh, 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 recall that John, who's uh, the author of this gospel, uh, he's the brother of James, and he's called, they're called what? The Sons of Thunder. And uh, brother uh, brother Joe talked about uh, you know hearing the the story of Luke chapter 2 and and we're so familiar with it that we kind of grow numb to it we read these words in John chapter 1 and we grow numb to them because we've heard them so often 
but there's the only thing that ought to numb you about them is how overwhelming they are. They should just cause you to stand still and almost shake with being overwhelmed at the majesty of what's being proclaimed. And so, in a real sense, John begins the gospel with the great thunder of who is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. He will reveal this to us. And the prologue, again, these first 18 verses reveal in no uncertain terms the identity and the work of who is first introduced to us as simply the Word. This one who is called the Word is the divine revelation of the eternal God who entered into time and manifested himself to the world. Sadly, the vast majority of people have not understood who this Word truly is. They've not yet received him for who he is. They have not received the gifts that he provides, the greatest of which is being made right with God and having eternal life. Well, this brings us to John 1, 1 specifically. And it's intriguing to me that where Matthew and Mark and Luke all begin their accounts of Jesus and his first coming with Bethlehem, John begins with Jesus in the bosom of the Father. Thought about that? He takes us further back. Luke even dates, we, we read it, Luke dates his account by the reigns of Roman emperors and Roman governors and even Jewish high priests. But John dates his account back to where? The beginning of all that we know. John begins with three profound words that carry us back to the depths of eternity itself before a time of either time or creatures itself. And so both Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and John in this gospel begin with the same wording, in the beginning. The book of Genesis starts within the beginning and it works its way downward. It begins to reveal to us everything that happens after that moment in the beginning. And yet John starts within the beginning and he takes us upward. He takes us as far back as he can imagine, as it were, to a time before eternity or before uh, this in the beginning. So John reaches back into eternity and he's establishing for us the identity of this one who is revealed to us as the word, the, the Greek word you're probably familiar with, the logos. Who is this word? Well, most of us know who he is. It's not until verse 17 that John tells his readers that this word is none other than Jesus Christ. Up until that point, you're just like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this glorious word? We find that not only Jesus Christ fulfills all the declarations of the word given in verses 1 through 18, he's the only one that could. Now, there are many who have spent a lot of time pondering whether or not John was making reference by using this word logos, the word uh, of Greek philosophy, especially that of a philosopher by the name of Philo. If John was making any references to the logos of Greek philosophy, it was only to connect people to the truth. For the truth of the matter is that the logos, the word, is nothing like that of Greek philosophy. He's so far beyond all of those things. John is not Greek. John is a Hebrew. 
and therefore he writes from a Jewish, not a Greek, view of the world. And for the Hebrews, the idea of logos, or the word, is that God who created all things, he did so by simply what? Speaking them into existence. And by doing that, he reveals himself through speech and through thought and through words. And so we find in passages like Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, we read this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. By the way, that phrase in verse 9, and it was done, could also be translated this way, and it was so. And you ask, why is that important? Because it takes us all the way back to Genesis 1-1 when it says things like, when God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below from the expanse of the waters which were above it, and it was so. And God said, let the waters below the uh, heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. What God says is. What God says is true. God's word is truth. The author of Hebrews also gives this Jewish understanding of the word. We read in Hebrews 11.3, Through faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. It wasn't through the accumulation of all the material stuff that was needed. It wasn't through architectural designs. God simply speaks and it is. That's the way the Hebrews consider these things. Even earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author makes this statement in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has what? Has spoken to us in his Son. The final and full culmination of the mind of God, the truth of God, the wonders of God, all packed into this person, which we identify as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is the word through whom God has revealed himself to man. Oh, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in Jesus Christ, we find him to be the very creator. That's the truth because God has said this is the word. And so in John, in verses 1 and 2, we establish the very nature of the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the very first phrase of verse 1, John brings out the eternal preexistence of the word by using an imperfect tense of the verb, to reach back into eternity and refute the idea that the word was created in the beginning. One of the very first heresies of the church is that Jesus was a created being. Well, John blows that idea out of the water, even in these words. While it's not proper English, we might better understand the meaning of the verb was here in the beginning, uh, was the word. We might uh, uh, translate it this way as already continuing. Already continuing. So we could read verse 1 this way. In the beginning was already continuing the word. The word, had, he already was and he was always going before that. And the word was already continuing with God. And the word was already continuing as God. 
As finite, limited creatures, we are bound by time. Yet John takes us back to the very edge of eternity, past. It's like if, we could, if he could just push us over, he would. But all we can do is get up to that very edge, that very moment when God brought time into existence. And then he declares that the word, when you get to that boundary, he's already been. He already was existing. He already was continuing beyond that. He declares that the word was already existing and continuing. It identifies that the word is eternal. And next, John explains the eternal relationship of the word with God. And so we read this as the word was already continuing with God. I love the picture here as the word... as the word with is pros in the Greek, it has the idea of being face to face. You're moving forward to meet somebody face to face. And so in the beginning was already continuing the word, and the word was already continuing face to face with God. You see the, the majesty of what John is doing here? This word is face to face with God. This word has existed for all eternity. This speaks of the one who is the word, however, being distinct from God, as having intimacy and equality with God. Jesus would speak of this intimacy and equality with God in John 17, 5, when he says, And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He had the same glory because he is God. So in verse 1, we we have the preexistence of God. We have the eternal relationship of the word with the Father. And finally here, we see the fact that this word is eternally God. As awkward as our translation states it, the word was already continuing as God. This is one of the earliest um, denials of the false teaching of the Gnostics, the idea that Jesus was merely a man and that uh, he took on certain aspects of deity at his baptism and then he lost them right before his crucifixion. That was one of the first false teachings. John tells us that this word, who is Jesus, has always been and always will be God. Let me offer you this translation of verse 1 if you're really into uh, exciting translations. I think it's going to be the, no, I don't, okay, I'm just going to offer, there it is. Here's the, here we go. At the very beginning of creation and time, the word, as the perfect expression of God the Father, had already and always existed, and this word was an act of communion, face-to-face with God, and this word inherently shared the same nature as God. He was already continuing in the beginning, face-to-face with God. Behold the word. And that's all we know at this point. You all are so smart, you've gone way uh, advanced with that, but if you just stop there, you're just talking about this incredible person known as the word who is eternal, He's been in communion with God himself, and he is, in fact, God himself. This is the person who is called the word, the logos. And he's going to be the one, verse 18 says, is the perfect interpreter, declarer of the word of glory of God. And then we read something 
that I find even more extraordinary. You've been introduced to the word. You know who he is now. We drop to verse 14, and we read these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the, of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we find that the word, the one who is truly and fully eternal God, arrived in the world as a concrete and visible person, being the reality of who God is, to bear the glory of God to those around him. This word became something in addition to his divinity. He's always been God, but now we read of something that really should blow our mind. This one who is God became what? Flesh. He became flesh. A word that means meat. It's a coarse word, a crass word. We speak of carne. The Latin would say where, the, of course, the Hispanics gave us the wonderful food, carne asada, right? That's what Jesus is. He's become meat. That's the idea here. Here is Emmanuel. Here is God with us. God became flesh, human, and dwelt, a word that means tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. He's living with us. In the life of Christ, we find him in many conflicts with people, with sinful creatures who did not know or understand God because of their serious misconceptions of God. Christ would come and expose them all. And yet it was Jesus who was called the liar. It was Jesus who was called the blasphemer. It was Jesus who was called demon-possessed. Why? He brought the reality of God to bear on them in ways in which they had never experienced. And I promise you, if you truly know God, when you come face to face with God in your quiet times of prayer, when you come face to face with God in a true reading of Scripture, there will be times when God terrifies you. And then the only recourse you have is, but the blood of Christ has saved my soul. In the gospel accounts, we learn how Jesus acted towards others, and in so doing, we see how God acts towards others. We see the works and the actions of Jesus in the gospel as we do so. Jesus says, you're not actually just seeing the works of a human, you're seeing the works of God. You see how God works towards people. When we see the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are to see the gift of God's salvation along with his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. When Jesus came, he brought with him, our text will tell us, grace and truth, but not just some grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. He overflows with grace, praise God, and with truth. And if you really desire to know the truth about yourself, well, we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the, the, word, uh, the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces down into the very depths of your being, and it exposes you for, how, for who you are apart from God. It lays you bare. It tells you you have an accounting before God. That's what the word does. He brings grace and truth. 
everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus explained and exegeted uh, of who God is for us, did so to reveal to us the glory of God. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. When we see Jesus, we see God's character and God's nature. And Jesus made this abundantly clear in his exchange with Philip in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. Philip, of course, this is right after those very familiar verses when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Philip uh, then comes along and says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And it's as if Jesus is dumbfounded at this point. I, are you serious? Have you not been with me, Philip? Have you not seen the glory of God through the things that have been done? Have you not heard of the glory of God through the things that I have proclaimed? Jesus said in verse 9, Have I been with you? Have I been so long with you, and yet you have, you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see the exasperation almost of Jesus. If you truly examine me, Jesus says, you see the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. What is Jesus saying? Beloved, Jesus reveals the glory of God in his person. Why should you desire to spend time in the Gospels. You're about to enter into a new year and there'll be new, God, new uh, Bible reading plans. Make sure you read about your Lord Jesus Christ and get to know him. Why? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there's more. Not only does Jesus reveal the glory of God in his person, we see Jesus reveals the glory of God in his preeminence. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So we read the gospel accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We come to see that his glory was veiled to most people. Uh, even in the person of Jesus Christ, how do you e exemplify the fullness of the glory of God uh, while, uh, while in, the, in that, that uh, fleshly body before it was glorified? It's interesting that in the moments when others did see the glory of God, when Jesus would do something that was, could, they would say, this can only be of God. When people saw those things, so often they would turn it against him. They would use it as a justification to kill him. For example, on the heels of Jesus, having just raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you imagine anything? It wasn't just for Mary and Martha's sake. Jesus goes publicly to the tomb where, Jesus, where Lazarus was laid. He had been there for four days, for by now he stinks because he's been dead for so long. And Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And everybody sees it. 
And the religious leaders are so excited. Wow, this is a work of God. Here's the glory of God on display. We must worship Jesus. No, they, got, they, they conspired together to figure out a way to kill Lazarus again and to kill Jesus. They used the glory of God against Jesus. They saw the signs, the attesting miracles that demonstrated the divinity of Jesus as a reason to kill him. We read in John eleven forty seven. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. So from that day on they planned together to kill him. They saw the glory of God, and yet they did not see it. I fear that there are so many in churches even today that will see the glory of God. They will sing the glory of God. They'll proclaim it with their mouth. And yet they will not see the glory of God. It is this veiled glory of Christ that makes the testimony of John the Baptist in verse 15 so critical. John had to recognize and then he rejoiced in that which enraged others. And what is it? John realized that Jesus is the embodiment of God. God and his glory. John rehearsed the truth that Jesus was the eternal word of God in human flesh, and John explained God's glory for those around him so that they would see it. The issue is that when the glory and the grace and the truth of God confronts people in the person of Jesus, it demands something of them. It demands absolute allegiance. It demands being willing to give up everything and follow him. It demands personal sacrifice. It demands even suffering at the hands of other sinners who will not like you for following Christ. It demands at times the forsaking of family and even the family business if necessary in order to follow Jesus. It demands the sacrifice of time and resources so that one may simply sit at the feet of Jesus. It demands an absolute trust in him as both Savior and Lord. It demands that Jesus will come to have first place in everything in your life. It demands that Jesus has preeminence in your life, that he is first. We hail the newborn king. We worship him who is Christ the Lord. And so the question is this. Will we recognize the glory of God as seen in the person and work of Jesus? Or will we deny the reality that stares everyone in the face as they behold the Jesus of the Bible? In verse 15, John tells us that when he came face to face with the glory of God in Christ, he stopped and he recognized and he rehearsed that I was born before him. I'm his older cousin, but I tell you what, he so infinitely outranks me. Why? Because before me, he had already Existed, and he's echoing those words of John 1, 1 and 2. John proclaimed Jesus as the eternal word. 
John proclaimed Jesus as the one in the flesh. John proclaimed Jesus as the glorious one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our honor, worthy of our praise. This is why Jesus came. So that men like John, men like Brett, Jake, women, Sarah, Abby, that we would behold the glory of God. We would be in awe of who Jesus is. And we would then reflect that glory. Well, one final point. Jesus reveals to us the glory of God in his presence. This is Christmas, right? You all want presents? Anybody here not want presents? I've got some coal for you, right? Well, in verses 16 and 17, we see the presence. For of his fullness, we have all what? Received. Whatever received? Grace upon grace upon grace, a never-ending flow. For the law was given through Moses. That which condemned was given through Moses. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. These are some wonderful verses. And they contain such incredible words, fullness, grace upon grace, truth. These are words of generosity, are they not? Some of you might be overwhelmed today at the gifts you received tonight or tomorrow, but they're nothing compared to the generosity of our God. In keeping with the Christmas tradition then, when Jesus came, he brought with him the most incredible of presents, presents that reveal the superlative generosity of our God. Jesus put the generosity of God on display. Notice that there is nothing lacking in Jesus, for it is out of his own fullness. Jesus is complete in himself. He does not need the Father to to put something in him because he is himself God. There's nothing lacking. His own completeness, uh, uh, out of his own completeness, we that have believed have all received. We have all, the word means to take hold of the generosity of God. Jesus has come uh, to be the fountain of life, the fountain of truth, to be the one who is our way. And all we need to do is believe, take hold of that truth. Jesus is the giver of grace and truth. Jesus is the giver of life and hope and peace. And he keeps giving, and he will never stop giving. Can you imagine? I, I, I just quick survey. Have any of you ever grown tired of opening presents? Have you ever opened so many presents? You're like, well, this is enough. Try to tell one of the children that, right? There's nonstop gifts from Jesus if you believe. Now, sometimes some of us yeah, as believers, we we have something going on in our heads. We have a sinful behavior that has kind of alienated us from our, our proper relationship with God, and we think the gifts have stopped. But it's not because Jesus has stopped giving. It's, that he, it's not because he's unwilling to give. It's because you have some business to do with the king. He never stops giving. He is the supplier of an inexhaustible storehouse of blessing. 
Notice that believers are merely the recipients. These are the ones who have received, who will always and will only receive from one source. That's Jesus. He is the fullness. He is the source. We have nothing to offer him. It doesn't say there's anything for us to give to him. Yet Jesus continually explains the glory of God by his infinite generosity of grace and truth towards his people. When we read that grace and truth comes through Jesus, we must not read this as if to suggest grace and truth are given to us through Jesus as though he is merely an instrument in the hands of God by which God supplies us grace and truth. Rather, the text actually indicates that he is, in fact, in himself, grace and truth. It has to be. It's not just that he's doling out something that the Father has given to him because that would make him less than God. He's dealing out what that is of himself, his own deity, his own wondrous person. I love that particular picture. Grace and truth are, are ours. They've been brought into being because of Jesus Christ. The reason our Savior is so full of grace and truth is because he is grace and truth. He's the author of grace and truth. All grace and truth originates in Jesus. And so we come and celebrate that Jesus is the giver of givers. He is the supreme distributor of both spiritual and temporal blessings or presence. Because he's the very inventor. You ready for that? He is the inventor of giving. When you share your gifts tonight, remember that Jesus invented all of that. He invented the gift or the idea of giving. Jesus is the definition of generosity. In his generosity and his giving of his own life for us on the cross, in his provision for eternal life through faith in him, we see also then the grace and truth of God the Father. Because the Father is God and he is gracious in giving. Jesus, by definition, the word who is God, must also be full of grace and truth. Beloved, Jesus came to reveal the glory of God. Again, in John, 14, uh, John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus declared this. Jesus said, Father, I glorified you on the earth. He perfectly glorified, wondrously glorified. I glorified you while on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and dwelt, lived among us. In his humanity, the works and words of Jesus clearly explain to us who God is and what God is like. In his works and words, Jesus confronts all of the misconceptions about God. He shatters them into a million pieces and then replaces them with the correct and glorious picture of who is our God. The supremacy of Christ confronts us. It calls us to submit to him as Savior as well as our Lord and our God. Isn't that what happened to Thomas? When he says, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. Beloved, the generosity of Christ giving us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace overwhelms those of us who are looking to the goodness of our God. When we give and receive gifts, particularly in the true understanding of, of, of what is Christmas, we are seeking to follow the pattern of Jesus. 
who is the very definition of generosity and giving. Jesus is the fullness of God. He is full of grace and truth, full of giving grace after grace. And so we started with the asking of a question. Why celebrate Christmas? I trust that I've given you some things to think about to answer that question. And why do we take then these holy days, these holidays, to stop and ponder why it is we give gifts, why it is we sing songs about the eternal God becoming man and dwelling among us? Why is it that we desire to explain and rehearse the truth of God? We celebrate Christmas, beloved, because in the coming of Christ, followed by his life, we see the fullness and the greatest revelation there ever has been of the glory of God. We see this glory of God expressed perfectly in Christ, in the person of Christ, in the preeminence of Christ, and even as we've seen in the presence of Christ. Would you take some time to explain and to rehearse aloud the purpose of God for our celebrating this day? of our seeking Christ out of the pages of Scripture so that we may behold the glory of Christ and thus proclaim with the angels as we sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Come, let us behold the glory of Christ, the wondrous mystery of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, given to us so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, which is the best gift that can ever be received by any human. And I pray that each and every one of you have received it. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the revelation of who he is and what he is like. We thank you that he is not only full of grace and truth, but he is full of your glory, full of the glory of God, and that he has manifested it to us in such a wondrous way that we can be in awe, that we can ponder, that we can be even like the angels, longing to look into the things in which you have done to bring us salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, may we constantly come to him who is wondrous, to him who is at times mysterious, to him who has done great things so that we might know you and be right with you. May we rightly celebrate Christmas, we ask and pray in Jesus' name.